118. So we'll start with our summary statement for this psalm. Psalm 118 praises the Lord for deliverance from enemies. And death. To enter the gates of his house. To give thanks to the Lord. So let me go over that again. Psalm 118 praises the Lord for deliverance from enemies and death. To enter the gates of his house. To give thanks to the Lord. A simple outline for the psalm is um, not quite half, but uh, verses 1 to 18, the day of distress. Verses 19 to 29, the day of thanksgiving. So let me go over that again. Verses 1 to 18. The day of distress, verses 19 to 29, the day of thanksgiving. All right, so we'll go to our observations for this psalm. So there is, you can see, no superscription. It's what we call, again, an anonymous psalm. Uh, There's no author attribution anywhere, no no real strong um, historical tradition either. Um, there is some that that uh, like to think that maybe David wrote it, um, but really all indications are that it was too late um, past his time. But anyway, an anonymous psalm. We have no musical direction in the psalm, and there's no occasion given for the psalm. Now, like we've seen in the past several psalms we've been looking at, the psalm does envision the future day when the righteous one, who is the cornerstone, leads Israel through the gates of the Lord's house in a triumphal procession. So that is obviously a future vision um, that is contained in this psalm and a future occasion. Um, So uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. So to categorize this psalm, Psalm 118 is a praise psalm. It's not a hallelujah psalm, but it is a hallel psalm. So we have in it uh, calls to praise or thanksgiving and reasons to praise. Um, Certainly fits within that um, category. Um, It is also a messianic psalm. Jesus quotes verses 22 and 23 as being about himself and his rejection by Israel. Uh, This psalm is cited around 11 times in the New Testament, and most of those are being connected or applied to Jesus Christ in some way. So 
uh, a messianic psalm. Now, being a messianic psalm also means prophetic predictive. There are some minor wisdom elements in this psalm as well. So you get uh, some proverbs in the psalm, verses 8 and 9, and they have that proverb, the, the typical structure you expect in a proverb, and they have this better than form. Better is this than that, um, which is a very common form for proverbs in the book of Proverbs. You also have verses 22 and 23, um, which give what we would refer to as a wisdom reversal. So we've talked about how in wisdom literature in particular, um, you have the, you have this um, sometimes this uh, imagery or, or whatever that's used to speak of a, of a great reversal. So, um, you know, s- sort of like uh, someone, you know, digs a pit and then they fall in it themselves, um, that sort of thing. And you get that in Proverbs. You get that some in Ecclesiastes as well. But we've also encountered it a number of times in the Psalms. So we have, we have one of those wisdom reversals in this Psalm. Now, Psalm 118 is the sixth and the final Hallel Psalm. So the Hallel Psalms are Psalms 113 to 118. And you'll recall that that Psalms 113 and 114 were sang before the Passover meal. Well, 113 praises the Lord for reversing distress and lifting up the needy. 114 remembers the Exodus, which is a figure of the new Exodus and the restoration of Israel that is future. Then you'd have the Passover meal, and then you would have... After that meal, Psalms 115 to 118 would be sung. So Psalm 115 speaks of the God of Israel versus the idols of the nations. Psalm 116 speaks of deliverance from death. Psalm 117 calls the nations to praise. And Psalm 118 sings of the deliverance of Messiah from death in triumph over his enemies. So when you think about it, that would have been the last psalm that was sung by Jesus and his apostles after they were in the upper room after the Last Supper and right before his death. And, of course, it is a very uh, appropriate psalm um, to be sung at such a time. Uh, To think about the connections with Psalm 118, um, obviously there are connections with the Hallelujah Psalms. Now, that's Psalm 111 through 117. And then other connections with the rest of the Hallel Psalms, which is 113 to 118. And we see that this psalm also touches on the themes of God's everlasting covenant faithfulness, triumph over the nations, and the restoration of Israel. So Psalm 115 and Psalm 116 in particular are strongly connected with this psalm, uh, particularly in, in relation to speaking about death and the deliverance from death. And being a messianic psalm, um, obviously it's going to share connections with other psalms. Uh, those most particularly would be Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Psalm 24, Psalm 110, and Psalm 18. And I kind of left Psalm 18 to the last because uh, it is very strongly connected with Psalm number 18. Um, we have in Psalm 18 and verse 50 this idea of messianic victory. Uh, In Psalm 18, verses 20 and 24, uh, blessings of the righteous one. Psalm 18, verses 4 and 5, we get reference to deliverance from death. 
And then if we think about some of the other Psalms and some of the things that we have here in Psalm 18, being surrounded by enemy nations and triumphing over them, uh, that would occur in Psalm 2, Psalm 22, and Psalm 110. Uh, which Psalm 110, yes, I did include that on that list. Um, deliverance from death in Psalms 18 and 24. Um, triumphal pr- procession through the gates, um, that's in Psalm 24 as well. So there's a number of connections between this psalm and other messianic psalms, uh, in particular in these themes. Now, so when I talk about in this section, when I talk about the connections that the psalm we're looking at has with other psalms, and even sometimes we'll I'll point out um, strong external connections as well. Um, and the purpose of, purpose of that, again, is is because there there is a um, there is a, a strong connection between the psalms, whether it's whether it's whether it's a verbal connection where you have the same language that's used, or whether um, could be using a synonym or similar terms or images or phrases, um, or could be speaking to the same event and that sort of thing. So, really, the intention is when we talk about those connections is that you read um, the psalm and you read those those other psalms um, and note those those connections and how those psalms will inform our understanding of this current psalm. Now, the poetic features of Psalm 118, uh, the outstanding one would certainly be repetition. There's just a lot of repetition in this psalm. It has a refrain, really, verse 1 and and verse 29, which are identical. Um, So there's a refrain at the beginning and the end that's repeated. And when you read through the psalm, there's a sort of a call and response effect at places in the psalm. Um, that helped to form a sort of a public worship procession, um, that sort of idea. There's um, definitely some imagery in the psalm. We have some military imagery, um, some battle imagery, some victory imagery in the psalm. And we also have this procession imagery. So there's a procession to the gates, um, a procession to give, to give thanksgiving. Um, so that is certainly another um, feature of the psalm. All right, so we're going to work our way through this song, uh, 29 verses. I'll go ahead and read these. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let them now that fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth forever. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do unto me. The Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. They can pass me about, yea, they can pass me about, but in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. They can pass me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord I will destroy them. Thou hast thrust sore at me that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. I shall not die, but live, 
and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord hath chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over unto death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them, and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me, and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, which hath showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even under the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. So verses 1 to 4 open up this psalm with this opening call to praise. And we get this refrain in verse 1, again, that is repeated at the end in verse number 29. But it's also interesting to note that the opening verse here is also an echo from Psalm 106 in verse 1 and Psalm 107 and verse 1. Now the statement itself is to give thanks unto the Lord because he's good and because his mercy endureth forever. And of course, that is chesed. His chesed endureth forever. It doesn't end is what is being said. It, it, it never runs out. And of course, we get this repeated over and over in verses 1 to 4 um, and then repeated again in verse number 29. Now, you notice in verses 2 to 4, you get this repetitive call. Let Israel now say. Let the house of Aaron now say. Let them now that fear the Lord say. And this is actually similar. Uh, there's a similar section in Psalm 115, verses 12 and 13. And so this reference to Israel, uh, the house of Aaron, which would be the priests, uh, and all them who, who fear the Lord. In other words, it's a, it's a repetition that is, that's covering all of, all of Israel. It's, it's all of that believing um, remnant of Israel that is being referred to. Now, in verses 5 to 7, we get some reasons for praise. Uh, we get this reference to distress in verse 5. And we also get this reference to being set in a large place at the end of the verse. And actually, when you look at these two words in Hebrew, these words are essentially opposite of each other. The word for distress refers to a, a narrow and a confined and a tight space. And the, the word for large place obviously refers to an open and, and a spacious and, and roomy place. And we get this actually echoing from Psalm, Psalm 18 and verse 19 as well as Psalm 31 and verse number 8. Now the Lord is on my side is, is what is stated there in verse 6. And essentially the, the statement is that he's declaring the Lord is for me. Um, he is a helper. He is a defender. And then the result of that is that there's no need to fear what men can do to him. So being in distress, being in danger, and obviously as, we, as the psalm progresses, in danger of, of death, being in distress, being in, in danger, but there's no reason to fear because the Lord is for him. The Lord is his helper. Now, the enemies here are first described here in verse 7 
as those who hate him. And this would be echoing again from the enemies in Psalm 18, verses 17 and 40. And there's a promise here at the end of verse 7, shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. And so this is, a, this is a promise that he's going to see the triumph over his enemies. And this is actually um, appears a number of times in the Psalms, this particular promise, and particularly as it applies to the Messiah. Psalm 27 and verse 13. Psalm 37 and verse 34. Psalm 59 and verse 10. Psalm 98 and verse 3. Psalm 107 and verse 42. Psalm 112 and verse number 8. Now verses 8 and 9 give us those proverbs. You have those, those two-line um, format, and, and in this better-than form, it's better to trust the Lord than put confidence in man. It's better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in princes. So the, two, the, the statements are very similar, um, but ultimately saying that taking refuge in the Lord is better than trusting in men, even than trusting in princes. In other words, the maybe the mightiest of men. Now in verses 10 to 13, we get a description of the psalmist being surrounded by enemies. And that word for compassed is the idea of being surrounded. Now the verses here repeat that term, being surrounded, encircled, um, compassed. It repeats that term several times in these verses. The word for nations there is goyim. Um, so that's the non-Israelite nations on earth, the enemy nations, the nations that hate him. But the promise is, or the, the realization is, or, or the declaration is, I will destroy them in the name of the Lord, which is the repeated outcome as we look at these particular verses. Now we get this reference to bees and thorns in verse number 12, which is, kind of odd, um, but this makes sense. The, so the reference to bees is giving us this imagery of like a swarm of bees surrounding some victim. So again, in this section, he's describing how that the enemies are surrounding him. They're enclosing him on, on all sides. And so they're like a swarm of bees, um, but they're, the, the success that they're going to have or the duration of their attack is like a fire of thorns and a fire of thorns that is um, quenched or extinguished. So if you think about it, a fire of thorns. Is, so thorns would be um, something that would be very, um, very, very small matter. So if, if you take um, some sticks, something you might even call kindling, um, and you, you light it on fire, well, it's going to catch on fire pretty quickly, and it's going to blaze up, and it's going to burn, but it's going to burn out quickly. So it's not like you know, having a, a big um, chunk of oak or something that you've, you're setting on a fire that's going to burn um, for hours. It's something that's just going to flame up, but then it's going gonna, it's gonna to burn out very quickly. So that's the imagery. They're, they're swarming like a, like a swarm of bees around some victim, but... Their success and their duration is going to burn out quickly like a fire of thorns. So their attacks are neither going to last nor are they going to succeed. Now the enemy nations are described here as threatening to bring about a fall. 
but the contrary is that the Lord helped. And the word that's used there actually is a word that also means to surround or protect. And so he's surrounded by enemies, but he is surrounded and with God's protection or, or his refuge as well. Verses 14 to 16 give us a section of victory songs. And the imagery that's used here in, in these verses is that of a, of a military camp after a battle victory. Um, we get references to, to strength, which just refers to, to might. Um, song, uh, which is um, the uh, substance of musical singing. Um, salvation, which is deliverance. And it's referenced to tabernacles here. The word there means tents. Um, and, of course, that contributes to this military um, camp imagery. And then we get these, what we might call the songs of God's right hand. And so the, the, the praise of God's right hand, um, which is obviously an image of strength, um, it's, an, it's an image of the source of deliverance. And so God's right hand is praised. Verses 17 and 18 now focus on this deliverance from death. And I talked about that a number of times um, earlier in in the observations about this psalm and how it connects with some others. Well, here we get this deliverance from death that is brought out in these two psalms. Both of these verses refer to deliverance from death and echo from Psalm 115 and verse number 17, Psm 116, verse 3, 8, and 15. Now, this deliverance from death and the way that it is, is referred to, it actually, it actually puts this in the Lord's hands. So he describes in verse 18 being chastened sore. But though he is chastened sore, he's not given over to death so that death has the victory. Of course, this reminds us very much of, of Psalm 16 and verse number 10, that prophecy of the resurrection of, of the Messiah. His soul will not be left in hell or in the grave, and his flesh will not see corruption. So he wasn't given over to death. Death didn't have the final word. Death didn't have the dominion um, over him. And we get this reference also to, to um, I shall not die, but I shall live. And we have seen a number of times this reference to that, the fact that the dead do not praise the Lord. And the point is, the dead don't praise the Lord. They can't praise the Lord for deliverance from death because they didn't experience deliverance from death. So they, haven't, they can't praise him. So in other words, what I'm saying is, is this deliverance from death is giving us a resurrection reference in this particular psalm. So when we're thinking about uh, the big picture of, of this psalm and the victory that, that's being spoken of, you realize that that victory comes through death and resurrection. Now, there are a few psalms that refer to um, the suffering of divine chastisement. Uh, Psalm 6 and verse 1, Psalm 38 and verse 1, Psalm 94 and verse number 12. I think we've talked about before how that's actually not extremely common in the psalms. Usually, the trouble in the psalms is most of the time seems to be enemies, those that are causing problems. Sometimes it, it maybe could be a, some other type of distress, but seldom is the suffering of affliction in the Psalms due to any sort of divine chastisement. Verses 19 to 21, these give us the after victory, after the victory, after the deliverance. 
And so we have this call to enter the gates victoriously. In other words, to give thanksgiving to the Lord for this great triumph. And of course, echoing from Psalm 24 with some very similar language there. The righteous one, we are told here, shall enter the gate. And he shall enter the gate because he has triumphed. So the prayers for deliverance have been heard and answered. Now in verses 22 to 24 is where we get this wisdom reversal. So the rejection of the stone by the builders pairs, of course, with the distress from earlier from which he has been delivered. And the stone that was rejected, we're told, has become the head cornerstone. In other words, the most important stone of the foundation in that day. So this, so to say that the the builders rejected a stone. It would be, um, you know, if you've uh, if you've gone to the to the uh, store, you know, some of the home stores, and and you've bought some two befores, for instance, um, and you go through the pile there, you realize that most of them uh, would be very well suited to building rocking chairs, um, but other than that, they're not extremely well suited to construction because they're twisted and they're bowed and they're bent, and so. You go through and you reject those materials. And that's the idea of this stone being rejected. The builders have, it's like they've examined this stone and they, they found it unacceptable. This is, this, is not a, this is not a good stone for this purpose. So they've called the stone out. And he, God in this great reversal now says, but that very stone that was rejected is become the head of the corner. In other words, the most important foundation stone in the building. Now, of course, this is was prophesied also by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 28 and verse number 16, where he referred to the stone being laid um, in Zion. This is a, in Isaiah 28, it's a woe to Samaria, so the northern kingdom um, of Israel, and essentially they're being warned about rejecting, um, stumbling over that, that stone. So we're told here that God is the one that has done this. In other words, the implication is only God could do this. Only God could do this. It's, it's, you know, it's marvelous um, in our sight. And then we get this verse here that you probably are familiar with. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I'm just going to guess probably everyone is familiar with that verse from the Psalms. Is anyone, were you, say, prior to tonight, familiar with what that verse actually means and is actually talking about? Well, what this verse is actually talking about is this day of victory that's being spoken of in this psalm. This day when the righteous one enters in the gates in triumph with this procession behind him. This is the day of victory, and this triumph of the Messiah in other words, it will be seen by those that, that trust in him. Uh, they, they, we will experience this great day. And this day is what is being spoken of. This is the day that the Lord has made. God has designed. God has planned. God has foreordained this day from before the foundation of the world. And it, it will be kept. That's the day that the Lord has made that we will all rejoice and 
be glad in it because the Messiah has come. His kingdom has come. His people have been gathered and restored. Verses 25 to 29 um, give us the concluding praise of this psalm. We have references to um, calling on the name of the Lord. Um, And we get this... um, This reference, verse 26, which is another familiar verse, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Uh, We've blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And the the word for blessed that is used here actually means to kneel down. So it's saying bow down before the one who comes in the name of the Lord is, is what the statement is. Bow down before him. This is the one for whom the gates open. This is the one that leads the worshipers in. Um, And we can see that God has showed us light. God has favored Israel. God has caused his face to shine upon them. It makes you think of that um, ironic blessing uh, that God would cause his face to shine. He would not turn turn his um, face away, but he would cause his face to shine. So God has favored Israel um, by sending the Messiah, by delivering him from death, um, by gathering his people, and, and so on. And again, because... Uh, there's praise and exaltation and giving of thanks to the Lord. And because of his covenant mercy that's never ending, um, he is praised. And, of course, that's a repeated refrain from the beginning of the psalm. All right, so let's go to interpretation. So Psalm 118 teaches that God is sovereign over history. Now, another way that we might say that is that God determines, he governs, and he controls history. Now, there are things that happen that in in some ways surprise us. I'm not saying that we we think them impossible to happen, but but they just surprise us. We didn't didn't expect it, really. And things like that can can happen and, and have happened and probably will continue to happen. And it might seem like that the course of the world seems so bizarre and and random and and just going in the wrong direction. But God is actually in control. God has made a day when what we're reading about in this psalm is going to be fulfilled. It's going to take place. And so we can see that Israel and Israel's history then... Um, is what we could say is enclosed in God's rule over over history. Um, nothing is is out of His control, and this wisdom reversal that we get in this psalm also gives us this idea that this victory, this triumph, this day that's being spoken about here in this psalm, it gives us this idea of suddenness and of and of a very dramatic change. This isn't something that happens incrementally over time and I, and I think that would really help us with our perspective when we look out around us in the world today uh, and we see things that are just so bizarre and just so crazy and, and 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 we think how could anything good ever come out of this and how could things be so bad and how could this that well listen th- this triumph of the messiah is not something that's that's sort of incremental. That's sort of slowly. Like we're not we're not ramping up toward this, you know, getting better and better and ready for his coming. No, this is a reversal. This means it's a dramatic and a sudden change. So when this triumph comes, 
It will be dramatic. It will be sudden, and it will be something that we will see. Psalm 118 also teaches that that day of victory and triumph, that it is God's work. It is, it's his work. He does it. He's the one who does it. In other words, he wins history. God wins history. It's in his hand, and it is evident. And again, it'll be sudden. It'll be dramatic. It'll be, be unlike anything that we've ever witnessed before. Um, but it is also sure. The Lord has made this day to be rejoiced um, and to be glad in. Well, the messianic hope of this psalm is obviously seen in the fulfillment of messianic prophecy applied to Christ in the New Testament. Of course, we could look at this and see how part of, of this psalm has been fulfilled in Christ, and part of it is still yet to be fulfilled. So, we just think about sort of the, the happenings around when Jesus refers to this passage. So, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. Um, you remember the people were shouting and they're putting down the palm branches and they're crying out, Hosanna. And one of the things they're doing is they're, they're actually referring, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That's, and you can read about that in Matthew chapter 21, verses 6 to 11. So they're actually shouting the words of this psalm to Jesus as he's riding in this little donkey coming into Jerusalem. After this, he goes and he cleanses the temple. Uh, he tells a couple of parables, and the last parable that he tells there is the, sometimes referred to as the parable of the tenants. And after he gave that parable is when he quotes Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, as being fulfilled by his rejection by Israel. And also... Peter clearly identified Jesus as this stone in Psalm 118 in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And this is, um, Peter also referred to um, Psalm 2 as being fulfilled by the nations and Israel gathering together to crucify Jesus. And we see a connection there between these two particular psalms. Now, also in this psalm, in verses 17 and 18, we get this reference to resurrection from the dead. He wasn't left, or he wasn't given over to death so that death had the victory over him. But he was chastened. And that just seems so out of place, really, when you read this psalm, that he's, he's surrounded by enemies, and then all of a sudden, in deliverance from death, and he refers to being chastened, sore, by, by the Lord. And of course, he was chastened, and according to Isaiah 53, he was chastened because he bore all the sins of all his people. And so he was chastened, even unto death, but he wasn't given over to it. It did not get the victory over him. Well, even if we think about this psalm as a messianic psalm, and we think about those songs of God's right hand, those references to, to God's right hand, God's right hand destroys and delivers in that future day. And this is actually a reference to Christ. He is the man from God's right hand. He is, the, he is David's Lord who will tread down the enemy nations in defeat and restore Israel and the creation. And, and that's read in Psalm 80 and verse 17 as well as Psalm 110 and verse number 1. All right, let's go to application. 
I have two of these. Number one, understanding Psalm 118 helps us understand that we should not fear men, human beings, mankind. And one of the reasons why I say that is because that's exactly the application that the writer of Hebrews made of verse number 6 in this psalm. So the writer of Hebrews quotes verse number 6 in Hebrews 13, 6, and he quotes it there in a conclusion that we don't need to be afraid of men and what men can do, but rather to put our full trust in the Lord. Number two... Understanding Psalm 118 helps us understand Jesus Christ is our only hope of salvation. And I say that because this is exactly the application that Peter made of this passage in Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12. So right after he had referred to this passage and Jesus being this stone, in Acts 4.12 he says, and there's none other name given under heaven or, or under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. So he quotes 20, verses 22 and 23, identifies Jesus as the stone who was rejected, and then makes that application, makes that conclusion, Jesus Christ is the only one in whom there is salvation, and there is salvation in none other. <laughs>